I was so hard on myself for so long. And I was like, you know, I was, you know, 22 or 23 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. Mm-hmm. And I, like I said, I flunked out of my uh, junior year of college. And I was so hard on myself about that, beat myself up about it so bad. And I wish that I had been gracious to that girl. I wish that I had said, you have experienced so much trauma in your life. Like the fact that your timeline isn't matching up with everybody else's, like your life didn't look like everybody else's. You've had experiences unique to you that have like brought you to where you are right now. You are valuable mm-hmm. and your voice matters. Hello, welcome back to All Things Con Amor. That was a snippet from the incredible Maida Van Rye. Happy Hispanic Heritage Month. I really wanted to highlight some badass Latina women in STEM in general. And she is such an incredible example of what it means to overcome. Throughout this episode, we got to talk about how she made it out of the foster system and was able to go from living in a cult to becoming a first-gen Latina graduate student. She's a first-year pharmacy student at UF and overall just a gem of a person. I'm so grateful that we got to talk through self-love, processing trauma, and our experience as first-gen Latin Americans in healthcare. Before the episode starts, we wanted to include a trigger warning for both PTSD and suicide. We do talk about mental health throughout this episode, and please don't listen if those could be triggers for you. Resources will be linked in the caption if you or someone you know needs help. All Things Con Amor is the pursuit of holistic health, wellness, happiness, love, the things that really set our soul on fire. Enjoy the ride. Hello. Hi, guys. I am on with Maida. I'm so excited for you guys to learn more about her. Just to start the conversation off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, like um, like major life events that led you to who you are and where you are today? Yeah, sure. So first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on here. I'm so excited about this episode. Um, But a little bit about myself. My parents were from Mexico. Um, My mom actually came over when she was a girl with her parents. And she never uh, ended up getting citizenship here. She ended up going back to Mexico. And then my dad, he was actually from Mexico. It was uh, his family's from Oaxaca. So Um, they came over to the United States, had me. And unfortunately, when I was three years old, my mom got mixed up with the wrong crowd and she ended up having to serve some time in prison. And then because she couldn't afford to pay the court stipulated programs and everything that she needed to do to get custody of us back, she was deported. Um, so that left my siblings and I in the U S foster system. So I ended up being in foster care until I was eight when I was adopted and uh, my adoption was a little crazy because I was adopted into like a extremely religious, very like cult, like they actually were a cult family. And so that was very traumatic experience for me. I, because of that being in that cult, they really put the emphasis on women staying home and being homemakers. So I was only educated to the eighth grade in the cult. And so I kind of knew that I always wanted to be in the medical field. And so I self-taught myself through high school and, uh, yeah, did it all on my own. And then graduated when I was 18, left the cult and everything behind and tried to pursue a college education. But because of my educational background, I faced a lot of barriers, not only just in being first generation, I was actually first generation in my adopted family as well. So, and first generation just in my biological family. So there were so many barriers that I faced trying to teach myself, like, how do I apply for college and uh, learning all the education gaps that I had because I had self-taught myself through high school. So I had all these gaps and then not only that, but the mental health aspect that comes from like experiencing trauma, especially like trauma as a child and as a teenager, and it all caught up to me. So I actually ended up flunking out my junior year of college and I really had to reassess my life um, and figure out what steps do I need to take 
because it was either fail and not go to college or keep pursuing my dreams. And so I had to take time off, heal, and I ended up going back to school a couple years later and decided on pharmacy, which that's a whole other thing, how that happened. And then I ended up being accepted into University of Florida, which is one of the top five pharmacy schools in the nation. So to me, that was a miracle, (laughs) but uh, it was quite a process. But yeah, that's kind of my story in a nutshell. To say I am proud of you is such an understatement, like understatement of the century. Um, Guys, right before we started recording, I was telling her that like, the biggest part of why I reached out was because she had made this TikTok. It went very viral. It ended up on my For You page. I'm on like Latina women in STEM badass For You pages and immediate tears. Like her story is so insane to me. And the fact that I think a lot of times we, it's easy to make excuses for ourselves or be like, oh, well, they had this and this and this. So it was easy for them to pursue this. But she is the prime example of someone that faced every adversity possible and you still overcame against all of these odds. Did you, so you said you had siblings that you like kind of went through this with how many are there of you guys or like, were you close to any of them or were you very hyper independent going through all of this? So I had uh, four biological siblings that actually went into foster care with me. And so unfortunately I ended up being separated from two of them. Um, So I didn't get to really grow up with them, but one of them, uh, she, she did grow up with me. So we are, I'm, we're very close. I can only imagine like how something like that bonds the two of you. And so when you were like, how did you decide to self-teach yourself through high school? Like, what did that even look like? Like, I'm just, I'm so impressed with so many parts of your story. I have so many questions. Yeah. So I was very passionate about becoming or just being in the medical field in general. I had Mm -hmm. an incident with one of my adopted sisters. Mm -hmm. Uh, When she was three, she was diagnosed with type one diabetes. And because of the way that our family was, we kind of just went to the doctor as an absolute last resort. Like you're dying if you're going to the hospital, you know, the hospital. Mm -hmm. And so we thought my little sister was dying because she was deteriorating so fast. And if if you've ever been with someone that's experiencing like the type one diabetes where their pancreas is, you know, uh, killing off the cells, um, it's a very scary experience. And so, uh, she just lost weight so fast. It was when my mom drove away to take her to the hospital, I thought that was the last time I was going to see my little sister. Um, and then when going to the hospital, finding out it was type one and they gave her insulin and she was back, you know, it was a miracle to me. I was like, wow, that is so amazing. And it just like gave me a love and an admiration for medicine. Mm -hmm. And from that moment on, I'm I'm like, this is what I want to do. This, this is it. Like I want to be doing this. And so at the time I want to say I was 12 or 13. And so college being in the cult was kind of a big no, you, you know, okay. cause women, we were supposed to be focusing on like cooking and sewing and those types of things. And that's why they didn't really push high school education with us just to eighth grade. And so I knew I wanted more and I didn't know how to tell my parents because I knew that it would not be um, encouraged and mm-hmm. probably very much discouraged. Mm-hmm. Um, so my mom used to take us to the library all the time, you know, check out books and stuff like that. And in the library, I saw a pamphlet for a college and it was like all these different programs. I'm like really aging myself here. Cause this is like when everything was still kind of hybrid, you know, it's like, no, they had the internet, but like some people had the internet. So they had like websites, but they also still had like all this like information in the libraries that you could get. So mm-hmm. there was this pamphlet that was like a pre-med program and I saw it and I snuck it in one of my library books and I took it home and I literally read it under the covers at night so that uh, my parents wouldn't find it. And it listed all the classes that you would need to take in high school in order to get into their pre-med program. Okay. So it listed like chemistry one and two, algebra. And I was like, these are the classes I need to take. So I went to my mom and I asked her to buy me the books and she did. Mm-hmm. Um, so I began self-teaching myself and it was kind of like, mom, I, I want to do, uh, yeah, I want to do algebra. And she just kind of like, but you already finished school. Cause by that time I had completed the eighth grade. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, uh, well, I want to do more. <laughs> wow. So I ended up, yeah, self-teaching myself through high school. And, uh, it was one of those things where there were some concepts where I just 
couldn't catch on to it. So I would skip over it. And that really came around to bite me in the rear later on, but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm, but I mean, you, you did it. So you, you, did you get like your GED self-studying? Yeah. So I just okay. kind of completed a proficiency test um, once I was done. And uh, I told my mom when I finished, I was like, I'm done. And she was like, okay. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. I'm, I'm so impressed. And that's such a good skill to have in graduate school. Like I'm sure you're catching on a lot of graduate school is self-studying and self-teaching. Yeah. So <laughs> you were definitely prepared for that. I didn't really learn how to teach myself to study until like the later half of my college career. Like I was one of those kids that I, if I'd seen the concept, it made sense to me. I was set, but I wasn't the type to go out of my way to look at it myself. So if I went into an exam and like the professor had never covered it in a lecture. I just like wouldn't have read it in the textbook. So I just wouldn't know it. Um, (laughs) So yeah, I I had to change that pretty quickly. But what would you say were like the major differences in terms of like being raised in a cult versus the way you think like traditional families were raised? Like, um, I know you, you said that you're a huge PTSD awareness proponent and I am, I really commend you for that. Like, I think mental health is so important. It's something I really try to highlight on this podcast. So could we go into that a little bit more? Cause I'm sure everyone's always very curious about that. Yeah. So our cult, it was very, um, super like dated traditional type of thing where, mm-hmm. you know, women's place was in the home and the man, he was the leader of that home. And, uh, it, it kind of morphed into this thing of like, um, we had to wear long skirts. We had to like, our curriculum was literally the Bible, you know? Okay. So, uh, it, it was very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, just exclusive, like an exclusive community. And, mm-hmm. uh, like the beliefs were very bizarre. You know, we couldn't listen to any secular music, uh constantly didn't grow up watching movies or anything like that no I was very actually very separated from society like in fact when I ended up leaving the cult that was a big uh, hurdle for me was learning how to interact with normal society because I didn't know how to do that and I had some very awkward encounters and now I look back and I cringe and I'm just like oh my gosh I did not do that (laughs) no I would I would hope that like you can hold love for that person like at least you got out like a lot of people never get out you know yeah but it it was definitely different in the fact that I just I didn't get to experience normal things that normal teenagers get to experience you know like Mm -hmm. I I couldn't just go to the mall with friends that was not something that I did I couldn't, I obviously I didn't go to high school. I just was homeschooled. The relationship with my adopted mom and dad was very strange where it was like, I had to be holy. And if I wasn't holy, then I felt like I didn't have love that type of thing. So yeah, it was definitely a, a very different experience than what I feel like normal people went through. And at the time, Mm -hmm. I don't think I really realized that I was just kind of like, Oh, this is my life. I think there was a little voice in the back of my head that told me like, this is not right. But it was just kind of like survival mode for most of my childhood. Yeah. And when you're introduced that young, you don't really know the alternative. Like you don't really know what it is that everyone else's life is like. You just assume that this is normal for everyone. And I think conversations like this really, I mean, not that people in cults would hear my podcast, but (laughs) in, in all terms of life, like I think when I hear about how other people grew up, I'll realize that like, oh, like maybe there were some things that like I never felt safe in as a kid because I'm now hearing their experience with things. Yeah. And something I always like share with people too, is like, obviously like I had a very extreme upbringing, like I was in a cult, but I always tell people like, you don't have to be in a cult to like, know that something about your upbringing is wrong. Yeah. You know, like to question the beliefs that were um, given to you as a child. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for so many of us, they're like, oh, well, I wasn't in a cult. Well, no, but maybe like you were taught a belief growing up and you were taught to never question it. And I always tell people if something feels wrong, then question it, even if it is mm-hmm. like people that you loved. So, yeah, I think that's such an important point, especially now where like cancel culture can be very big and it's so easy to like go with like mass mentality thinking and not take a step back and be like well is this something that I want to believe or is this something that I just feel like I'm supposed to go along with and believe about the way my life is supposed to be or like a a really neat notion that I try to think about often is that not every thought we think is true 
Yeah. Just because we think something doesn't mean it's necessarily true. Like we think a lot of things. Um, and so like unlearning things, what did it look like for you when you realized that your mental health was suffering? Like, were you going to therapy and then they diagnosed you or like, where did you like hit a rock bottom? And then you were like, I need to go to therapy. Like, what was that journey like for you? Yeah. So I started experiencing the craziest symptoms mm-hmm. and I thought that I was going crazy. Uh, I st- would just be walking down the street and just start heaving, like sobbing. Um, and I was having night terrors and I would hear things that weren't there, mm-hmm. uh, which is also a very scary experience. And then like, I, I don't know how to explain it. You like see things that aren't really there. So I knew something was wrong and I was like, something is wrong with me. I need to like go and get help. I need to see somebody. So I actually Mm -hmm. did go and see a therapist and I was diagnosed with PTSD, which if you learn about the symptoms of PTSD, you'll see that like all those symptoms are very common for PTSD. Right. Um, But uh, at the time that was just like crushing to me because I had considered myself strong because I had made it through such a difficult childhood and being Mm -hmm. diagnosed with PTSD. I was like, wow, no, I'm actually really weak because I have a mental illness. And I actually did. um, At one point I was ready to take my life um, because I just dealing with the trauma from my childhood. And then Mm -hmm. with PTSD, I just thought that I wasn't strong enough. And I had lied to myself that maybe I could just make everybody's life easier if I removed myself from the equation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on the day that I was actually planning to do that, I sat there for probably a good five hours, um, just like crying and thinking over my life. And just you, when you're so close to like thinking like, these are my last moments, there's so many things that you think about. And for yeah. me, I was thinking about how, like my life, I hadn't ever really been happy. Like there hadn't ever been a moment where I was just like, this is great, you know? Mm-hmm. And I thought, what would it look like if I did that? If maybe I took a year to just really do everything that I had always wanted to do. And mm-hmm. then I could die knowing that I had lived a year where I was happy. And mm-hmm. I don't know where that thought came from. Um, other than like, it was the universe saying like, it's not your time. Yeah. Um, but that's what I did. And so I was like, I'll come back in a year and then I can die knowing that I gave myself a year where I was actually happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up breaking up my toxic relationship that I was in. Mm-hmm. I traveled to Mexico to meet my biological mother. Cause that was something I had always wanted to do. Yeah. I met, I connected with my biological family. I, um, start, went back to, a, started seeing a therapist. I don't know if I said that already, but mm-hmm. Um, it completely changed my life. And I realized that that was, that was the secret, you know, like actually doing things for yourself. And especially when you've been through so much trauma and just, um, like giving yourself back that power that was taken away from you. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, first and foremost, I am so sorry that you were ever at that point. And, um, I'm so glad, like so incredibly glad that you're still here and you are inspiring so many people. And like, even if you weren't, I'm just so glad that you're still here. Thank you for being so vulnerable and like sharing all of that in depth, because I I think that a lot of people can feel so incredibly isolated in those thoughts. And so I'm very, very honored that you decided to share your story and share those pieces of yourself on this platform. And I'm, I'm so glad that you feel that you got your power back and that you stayed to see what happiness could be like so um a lot of your tiktoks are really beautiful in that sense where you're like if I had left like I wouldn't have gotten to experience these things and your nephews are so cute um (laughs) they're very precious so I'm I'm so so glad that things turned out that way so what was the timeline for this like did your parents let you go to therapy or was it once you had already left that you started having the PTSD symptoms and then you got help yeah. So it was once I left, um, okay. that I experienced the PTSD symptoms, which for me, I actually have complex PTSD. A lot of people mm-hmm. don't know what that is. Complex PTSD, uh, is basically when you experience traumatic events over the course of your 
like several years, which is right. usually it's not one isolated event. Yeah. Whereas mm-hmm. PTSD is one isolated event for anybody that doesn't know, but I had complex PTSD and a lot of times it can have a delayed onset. And that's kind mm-hmm. of what happened to me. Once I removed myself from the traumatic situation, it just like, my body just was like, okay, now we can like physically and mentally deal with all the trauma that now that we're not in survival mode. Yeah. So it finally caught up to you. Yeah, it did. Um, so I mean, honestly, like, I think people don't really realize that we aren't taught a lot of things we should be taught. I feel really strongly about this, about taxes. Like, why why are we not taught how to do taxes in school? I mean, I was yeah. like, high schoolers are not taught how to do taxes. No. Yeah, now you know. Um, and in, in college, we're not taught that. And like, how to process and deal with our emotions, like, emotional regulation is so important. Yeah. like, keeping your head level and just just being capable of like really achieving anything and it's like there are so many books out there and there are so many different ways to do it but I think a lot of people like don't even really know where to start so what did that look like for you like in your healing journey what is some advice you think you could give people who also know that they have a lot they need to process um what are ways that worked for you for me definitely going to therapy. I always like, I'm, I'm such an advocate for therapy because it changed my life it, because when you experience things in your life, it doesn't necessarily have to be trauma, which I'm a believer that everybody experiences some type of trauma. Yeah, but they do. And they might not call it trauma, but like, it can be traumatic, like very, yeah. like things that you would deem small can still be very, very traumatic to the body and the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, because of that, I'm a huge advocate for therapy because we start to believe lies about ourselves, mm-hmm. And sometimes it just takes that, you know, that third party to just look into our lives and be like, that's actually a lie you believe about yourself because there's no truth to that statement yeah. that you're believing about yourself. So therapy, 100%. Mm-hmm. I think too, something that helped me was just like learning to give myself grace yeah, because it was like, I was so hard on myself for so long. And I was like, you know, I was, you know, 22 or 23 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. Mm-hmm. And I, like I said, I flunked out of my uh, junior year of college and I was so hard on myself about that, like beat myself up about it so bad. And I wish that I had been gracious to that girl. I wish that I had said, you have experienced so much trauma in your life. Like the fact that your timeline isn't matching up with everybody else's, like your life didn't look like everybody else's, you yeah. know, like you've had like experience, you experiences unique to you that have like brought you to where you are right now. And mm-hmm. so process it, heal, and really just be gracious to yourself because of the things that you've been through. And, um, that was huge. And even now, sometimes like I still, (laughs) I, I struggle with perfectionism and I'm just like, slow down, be gracious to yourself. Like you're not Einstein here, you know? So, yeah, it's especially hard when you realize, obviously you're like in a top pharmacy program. I'm in medical school. I'm not in, I'm not like at an Ivy league, but it's really hard when you go from college where like everyone, like has a general similar understanding of the content and like you have to be better than the people in college to get into this graduate program but suddenly you're in the graduate program where everyone at their respective colleges had to be better than everyone else to get into it yeah so you're like trying to compare yourself on just like a level that you shouldn't be comparing you know um and everyone is so smart in their own respect and it's so funny that that was the advice you gave without knowing that the last solo episode I recorded, I posted like last night, like I know you haven't listened to it. And that was one of the themes throughout it was learning to give myself grace because I'd been beating myself up about not posting a podcast episode since May. And I like felt like I was super behind. I was being so mean to myself about it. And I was like, I was studying for board exams. Like I, it's okay to give myself grace. And like, if one of your friends were to tell you her life story and had gone through as much as you had gone through, you would tell her it's absolutely okay. Like you can always go back to school. Like you would have been so kind to her, Yeah. but it's so hard for us to be kind to ourselves. Yeah. So, so true. 
Yeah. I love that you touched on the self-love aspect and it just, it felt very aligned because I knew you hadn't known <laughs> that I had mentioned that too. Um, no, I didn't. <laughs> I just, I wanted to highlight like on the terms of you getting yourself out of the situation you were in, I like what changed my mindset a lot. And the reason I wanted to start a podcast was because I went through like a time period where I would just binge listen to podcasts like all day. I got tired of music. I was driving a lot. I was commuting for um, the fellowship I was doing during my gap year. And this common recurring theme across people who end up like becoming very successful or overcoming great odds are the fact that they have an internal locus of control. So they look at a situation, they're like, what can I do personally to get myself out of this? Like, regardless of the hand, the cards I've been dealt, what can I do to get myself where I want to be? And I feel like you're such an excellent example of someone with like a really great internal locus of control because you really looked at your situation and you were like, well, I want to do this. I'm going to figure out how to get there no matter what. And so like, as a fellow Latina, like I'm so proud and I'm so happy to see you in healthcare. So, um, just my, my little side note, um, our, we have three Q and a questions. The first one is so often we see the media pressuring women to be everything at once, like a good mom, a good career woman, a good friend. And in your opinion, what do you think is the best way to challenge this? Wow. That's a good question. Mm -hmm. So, I think as women, we carry a lot of weight, like, yeah, like, you know, we're expected to be all these things and juggle all these things. And I guess the, for me personally, the way that I challenge this, because especially growing up, like in the background that I grew up with, where it was like, you know, I, your women are supposed to cook, you're supposed to clean, mm-hmm. you're supposed to have babies. Very stay one dimensional. Yeah. Yes. And so for me, like my personal rebellion of that was having a career and going to school and mm-hmm. pursuing a higher education. And now that I'm in higher education, it's funny because people will ask me, well, what are you going to do when you have kids? And I'm like, well, I'm going to do the same thing that my husband does. Um, yeah. so That's a good like, answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, this is a partnership. You know, I didn't, it's not one of those things, which I know women are more nurturing and that's just like part of our, you know, our nature is mm-hmm. to be more nurturing. Um, that's the way evolution has made us. And um, I'm aware of that, but at the same time, it's like, we're evolving. <laughs> And um, men better evolve too, but (laughs) (laughs) no. Um, So I think my way of challenging this is, you know, I, I have a career, like just being a mother doesn't define me. Just being a wife doesn't define me just as it doesn't define my husband. Like no one goes up to him and asks him about kids. Right. No one asks, like, no one's first question for him is, oh, are you married? I, I got that in the hallway and in, in front of my elevator the other day that I was like, just chatting with an older man. And he was like, do you have a, do you have a boyfriend? Are you married? And I was like, why is that your first question right after you ask what I do for a living? Like, what does it matter? Yeah. Um, but it was like an older man. I was like, this, this is weird. Like, why do women get asked this so often? Yes. And then last night, it's funny because I was, um, I ran into someone who was wearing scrubs and Mm -hmm. uh, like anytime I see someone in scrubs, you know, I'm just like, oh, hey, like, what do you do? Because I work in healthcare. And so this man was telling me like, he's a physician. He's a, he was a urologist. I'm like, oh, wow, that's so cool. So we're having this great conversation. And he was like, so you're in pharmacy school. And I was like, yes. And I was wearing my wedding ring. And he was like, I can see that you're married. And I was like, I am. And he was like, so your husband lets you go to pharmacy school? Like, oh. <laughs> what kind of question is that? Like, like he's my father. I need permission. <laughs> I just choked. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but if- I mean, it's these kind, this kind of like energy and like um, kind of negative uh, outlook on women having careers, especially successful careers. You know, it's yeah. like if I worked, if I worked, I don't know, as a cashier at Walmart, not like which is a really great job. No hate to anyone that works as a cashier at Walmart. But like, if I were doing that, people would be like, oh, okay, she's working part-time to support her family. But it's like, if you have a, like a career, you know, that's like full-time and you're really into it, you're really passionate about it. And people are like, well, what about your kids? Mm -hmm. And it's just like, (laughs) we have to challenge those narratives. We really do. And I think that people get really intimidated when they are insecure and see women in a position of like more responsibility and power. Yes. And I have learned 
over the course of just growing out of that fear and kind of the, the shame that people try to put on you mm-hmm. is don't be afraid to be a powerful woman. Just, yeah. and I, I learned this all the time from my husband because I just look at him and he's like, he's such a confident person. That's one of the things I just really admire about him. And even if he doesn't know something, he like is so confident where people just believe him mm-hmm. because he's so confident about something. And I'm like, this is how I like, I want to be a confident woman. Yeah. And I think that we're just like taught, like not to be confident, to second guess ourselves. And it's like, no, don't be afraid to be a powerful woman. Like don't second guess yourself. Step, like step into that energy where you're just not afraid of what anybody thinks about you mm-hmm. um, because you know who you are and you know your goals. And so follow that, follow your intuition and don't be afraid to step into that powerful woman role. Yeah, absolutely. And I think growing up, especially you, and I also was raised in like very traditional households um, because I'm first gen on both sides. My dad's Syrian, my mom's Colombian. And it was very much so like women are meant to be seen and not heard. And like, you can't speak unless you're spoken to. So we're not really meant to take up space. And so we second guess ourselves the second we start to take up space. And something that really changed my perspective on this was um, learning to not shrink yourself to make others comfortable. Like if you shining and being the person that you are makes other people uncomfortable that's a them problem it's not a you problem yes so and I love that you carry that energy too all right the next question we had for you and I think this will be really interesting I want to tweak it a little bit so the the original question was if you could give advice to a 10 year old version of yourself what would you say but I would also love to follow that up with like what advice would you give your like 20 year old version like right after you had gotten out and all of that so ages of 10 and 20 like what do you wish you could tell them I think that I would probably tell both of them something similar mm-hmm. <laughs> and it would just be that you are valuable mm-hmm. and your voice matters and I think those are the two things that I just didn't believe about myself and they manifested themselves in different ways when I was the 10 versus 20. But I think for me, it was just, I didn't really feel valued. Um, and I never, I never felt like my opinion mattered in anything or my voice mattered because I mean, it was always, you know, snuffed out or it was like children should be seen and not heard. And then when I was 20, it was just like, I felt so isolated because of my mental illness. And, uh, I just felt like everything I did didn't matter. Mm -hmm. And it, it actually did. It did matter. And my feelings mattered. Um, so I think those are the th- probably the two big things that I would tell myself. I'm, I'm like really emotional. Like we <laughs> do matter, you know, we are worthy of taking up space and uh, like sharing our voices. And for a long time, I put off starting this podcast because I felt like no one would want to hear anything I had to say. And I was so wrong. So I'm, I'm like pretty emotional hearing that. Um, Thank you for sharing that. Uh, and did you ever struggle with your identity in terms of like being first gen and then ending up in the foster care system? And like, how did that affect how you viewed yourself and how did you navigate it? Yes, I love this question, actually, um, because it's something like I have probably recently just really like dived into. Yeah. Um, because I think obviously I kind of always struggled with my identity um, being in foster care. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of times when when you're ex- when you experience the foster care system, it's just like you don't really I don't want to say you don't really belong to the family that you belong to because you do like there are some great foster stories out there, but you always wonder about yourself, you know, because you know that somebody else birthed you and you Mm -hmm. always wonder about that. Um, But uh, for me, there's, this is so multidimensional because it was like, I struggled with my identity in foster care um, because I was just like, I remembered my mother. I had memories of my mom and um, I remember having love for my mother. And so it was difficult for me to just pretend like she never existed, which my, my adopted mom never really asked me to do that. And she was always very much of like, um, well, when you're 18, you know, I'll let you start looking for your mom Mm -hmm. or for your biological mom. Um, So there was that. And then being first gen, I feel like 
I, my experience being first gen was a little bit different than maybe like what my other, like, um, Latina, um, friends have experienced because they've had a very like Hispanic Latina experience being first gen. But for me, it was kind of like, mine was more of like a foster care. Like I didn't have any resources or anything like that. And then my adopted family, um, none of them went to college. And then when I met my biological family, none of them had ever been to college. So it was just kind of like- first to go to college in both your biological and adopted family. Wow. Yes. Yes. You're really out here breaking the generational (laughs) trauma. Yeah. So it was like, it was uh, this like double effect. And Mm -hmm. um, when I decided to go off to college at that point, it was just my mom in my life, my adopted mom. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like, okay, like that's cute type of thing you know it wasn't like a big like oh you're going off to college go have fun yeah yeah kind of you know like and so I didn't there were so many things I didn't know about applying to college like I had no idea what financial aid was or like you know signing for financial aid or even the resources like the scholarships that were available to me I knew nothing about that I just signed up for classes and on top of that being homeschooled so I wasn't used to like the class structure And I remember the professor saying something about the syllabus and I was like, what's a syllabus? Oh, you'd never had one. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know what that was. Yeah. And it was just so crazy, but yeah. So there was that aspect, but I think a big thing for me was, and this is the more recent one was just like my identifying, finding out my like Latina heritage because I was adopted into a white family. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was always this, like, I had a very white experience. Um, and, uh, because of that, because my parents were white, I was, I think I was shielded from a lot of things as a child. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I became an adult that I actually started to have those experiences once that shield was removed from me. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was like, all of a sudden it was like, in my head, it was like, I, I was white, but it was like my skin wasn't. And so I had to, I had to come to a, it was like a little identity crisis. Yeah. You had to come to terms with that incongruency. Yeah. Because it was like my skin, even though like my, my family was never, never made anything of my skin. It was like, it was always something I was embarrassed about because mm-hmm. the rest of my family, they were white, you know, and my, I had other siblings that were adopted and they were Hispanic, uh, but they were all lighter skinned than me. And I was, oh. I was very dark. I was okay. the darkest one in my family and I was always embarrassed about it. And it was mm-hmm. never anything that I could like talk to anybody about. And then all of a sudden, you know, I moved to the Southern part of the USA. Oh and no. It was like, my skin was a topic of conversation always. Yeah. And, um, in college and like wherever I went, it was like a topic mm-hmm. and like, I had like, like very racist experiences. Sometimes I had microaggressive experiences and it was just this thing where it like just hit me in the face. And I'm like, I have to figure out how to navigate this because I don't know how, because yeah. like, and so, um, I was very embarrassed. I like, at one, like, and I'll admit it, like I tried to mirror the white people around me you know I'm like maybe if I look more white then and then I'll be accepted more and if just- I dress like them and if I act like them maybe I'll fit in a little bit more I think this is such yeah. an important conversation to have especially around Hispanic Heritage Month because we talk about like bad bunny blew up like it's cool to be Latino all of a sudden and I yeah was super proud to be Latino for the majority of my life because I grew up spending my summers in Colombia and I grew up in Maryland, which is like, I grew up in Northern Maryland. So it wasn't very racist. I definitely had racist experiences as a kid, but it wasn't as bad as it would have been if I had grown up in the South because I did a two week long internship in Alabama. And I, I just remember, like, I, I stayed with my cousins and like my, my sweet angel of a cousin, Bella, like she's also Hispanic, like super Colombian, but they are from the capital. They're from Bogota. They're just much lighter than we are. Like they're, Bella's very white passing, um, beautiful gal, but like she, like, it, it was just so interesting to notice that people treated me differently there. 
And I was like, I can't imagine if I had gone to college around here, like, you know, like people that move there or grow up there, like it's a very different experience. So I really appreciate you highlighting this. And like a really small thing that I will admit, because we're getting pretty vulnerable here is that when I was in middle school, I thought I wasn't pretty because I wasn't white enough. Like I, I was fully convinced of that because all the boys that I liked always liked the really, really like, mm-hmm. like uh, stereotypical white girls. And I just was not that, like, I just was never going to have the blonde hair and the blue eyes. And growing up, my dad would always talk about how like, that was like such pretty traits. And like, I would have been so much prettier if I'd gotten his eyes. He has blue eyes. And I was yeah. like, you do know that genetically that's not possible because <laughs> yeah. you chose my mother. So I don't know why this is a topic of conversation. Um, but yeah, yeah, I grew up super self-conscious of the way I looked and like not fitting in. I My high school is predominantly white too. So like, I, I know the feeling and there's yeah. no one to talk to about it. Yeah. And I think like, it takes like having honest conversations about it because it's like, I think a lot of times we're shamed for having those feelings, Yeah, but it's like, we don't love our culture enough. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. like, and there will be people that shame you. I I have gotten shamed so much for it uh, because people, they meet me and they said, why do you talk like a white girl? And I'm like, okay, well I could like go into depth about my trauma for you really quick, or I could just be like, okay, whatever. (laughs) Or you could just not make a comment about the way I talk. I think a really good tip for things like that are if they can't change it in five seconds, like don't say anything about it. Like if they have food on their face, tell them. If they have something in their hair, tell them. But if it's something like about their appearance or the way they are that they can't change in five seconds, like it's not for you to comment on. Yeah. But I definitely get those comments, but I, I always want to tell people too, like that it's a survival technique. Yeah. Like for me, it was very much a survival technique. It was like, here I was experiencing racism and like hostility because of my skin color. So I adapted and I'm not going to make myself feel bad about that because it was a survival technique. Now, am I still in survival mode? No. So I'm working on correcting it. I'm working on embracing my culture and learning more and educating myself about it and talking to other experience, other people that have had a very like Latina or Hispanic experience so that I can learn from them. Um, but, uh, I don't think that it's something that we should necessarily feel shame for, um, because we're surviving in a very white world. Yeah. And especially like not to put that huge spin on healthcare, but like in any type of field where you have to interview and you have to show up in a certain way, like if the people interviewing you are going to be predominantly like a certain type of person, they are going to view you more favorably based on the way you dress, based on the way you act, based on the way they perceive whether or not your manners are in line with what they're expecting. So like, I I don't think it's anything we should be shamed for at all. If anything, I think it shows how good we were at adapting to the situation we were given. And the fact that we are, we made it to graduate school says a lot about how far we've come. Yeah. Yeah. So this is definitely like a tough thing that I'm learning how to navigate. I feel like probably within like the past year, Mm -hmm um has been where I have truly and I can say this like with 100% honesty like been okay with the color of my skin mm-hmm. and I've been okay with the color of my eyes and my features um where in the past it's always been a source of embarrassment for me yeah. um and so that's something that I am like truly so proud of because like I genuinely just like not just love the inside of myself, but also have learned to love the outside of myself and realize that these features, especially being indigenous, because my, my uh, family is indigenous. Um, okay. They're mixed tech from Oaxaca, but uh, having those indigenous features, which it's not only taboo in America, but it's taboo in Mexico, mm-hmm. you know, because you don't want to look indigenous in Mexico. It's, I mean, you know, it just has so many stereotypes attached to it, yeah. but just realizing like the bravery that, my features um, symbolize, you know, people that made it through so much colonization and that have made it through poverty and all of these things. And I get like, I, the universe decided to give me this and I get to represent it. And it's just like such, 
like a twist on where I was like even a year ago where I was wearing, I was wearing green contacts and like, I was always like thinking about dyeing my hair. And now I'm like, no, I don't want to look any different. Like I like Mm -hmm. the way that I look. So it, I think just being first gen, like, I think that learning to love yourself and learning to love the culture that you represent is so huge. And it's such a thing that you should be proud of. Yeah, I I fully agree. And and just learning to accept yourself for everything that you are, because so often it was like we weren't white enough to be white, but we were too white to be like fully Hispanic because like you and I, like I didn't grow up like I wasn't born in Colombia. I was born here. Um, but when I go to Colombia, like I'm like La Gringuita, like I'm I'm the little, little white girl. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I I totally understand the notion of like feeling like you don't really fit in anywhere. And as I got older, I learned to just say that I like that I don't fit in anywhere. Like I I yes. like how unique my mix is. Like when people ask me where I'm from, I'm very proud of it. As like you should be of your beautiful indigenous features. What really made me start thinking about the way I perceive myself was that. I would see girls that look like you and like I saw your TikToks and I was like she is so gorgeous and I I got to a point where I was like we're both Latina like we have similar features like why can I think she's so pretty but I can't think that of myself yeah Yeah. it was very very interesting like how internalized I'd flip the switch so this is just a reminder to everyone listening that you deserve to love yourself exactly as you are and you you might not know how many people like pass you by on the street and admire you you know yeah, it's so true. Yeah. But I, I love that part that you said about like not fitting in anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another thing that like, just like, I was shocked about when I started just sharing parts of my story was just like how much people resonated with different parts of it. And, yeah. uh, even with like being like a Mexican American. And, uh, I know that people in Mexico hate that phrase. They're mm-hmm. like, no, not Mexican-American, but being a Mexican-American and realizing like there's just like a whole other group of people that like identify with me and, you know, or like Hispanic-American yeah, and us that we've had an American experience kind of, but we've also had a very Hispanic experience here in America or in the United States. So it's just this crazy thing where you're just in this middle ground. And I think that more of us need to like take up this, like take up this space and like speak out because we, there's so many of us. And I just love like the fact of like all of us standing together and like creating spaces for people who maybe have a more Hispanic or more Latin experience than ourselves. And I just kind of view us as this bridge between both cultures. And I think that's so cool. I think it's beautiful. I totally agree with everything you said. And that's really my goal at the end of the day is making people feel seen and heard and understood. And I know that we accomplished that throughout this conversation. So I'm so grateful for you for your time today and for sharing your story, because like it is so hard to find that community if you don't already have it. And I feel like as a kid, my mom had a few friends and they were, it was like this friend group. And so we kind of had like this little Latin community where like for holidays, we would have parties. They were all Puerto Rican. And I just, at the end of the day, it was so hard for me to find someone that understood the weird mix of being half Malaysian and half Latino. And I still, Mm -hmm. it's not that I've found necessarily people that are exactly like me. And that's not the point. The point is that like, I have found people who are Arab American, like in school. And I found people who are Hispanic American and, the more that we have these conversations, I think the more we can build these communities and eventually like I I the dream to me would be to host like a neat little like happy hour, like a get together and introduce people and build connections because at the end of the day, humans need connection. Like we yes. really like thrive on our commonalities. And so I I appreciate you sharing your voice because I know that you make people feel less alone. And I think that's such a special and important place to have in this world. So um, thank you. Yeah. And I appreciate you so much again for just like having me on here because I think when you've experienced your voice being silenced, it means so much when people li- literally lift you up to amplify your voice. And yeah. so it means so much to me that you invited me to be on here. 
Oh, I got chills. I'm I'm so happy. I, I feel the same way. Like I said, like I was really nervous about starting a podcast and I was like, oh, no one's going to want to listen. And then the support was so overwhelming. It's really surprising, I think, when you finally do something you didn't think you could do. And then mm-hmm. you notice there are way more people cheering for you than you thought. Yes. So yeah. yeah. Anyone listening <laughs> to this, if you've been wanting to go after something and you are just nervous, like know that even if no one you know in real life is supporting you, I'm supporting you. Yes. Mine supporting you. Um, we're yes. cheering for you. Thank you for spending the last bit of time with us and listening to us. And if you enjoyed any part of this or it really resonated with you, and you share it on your stories and tag us, that would really make our day. Um, if you feel that anyone you know could benefit from this and you want to share it with them, that is honestly like the biggest reward to me is um, having like just word of mouth and like when you really love something and you share it, I think that's the highest compliment you can give. So thank you again. So guys, uh, you can follow Maida, all of her Instagram and her TikTok handles will be linked in the caption and the description of this episode. Um, so I always ask like, where can people find you? Where do you prefer that people follow you? And then what is a resource that you really love, whether it's like a book or a podcast or like a lecture you listen to that you feel like had an impact on you that you would recommend other people. Okay, great. So you guys can find me on Instagram or TikTok. Instagram, honestly, um, my Instagram's not that great. I mean, like there's not a whole lot of exciting things happening on it other than just my travels. Um, I don't really post a lot of stuff on there, um, but I do try to keep up with my TikTok. And so that's um, Alexandra Van Rye. And then as far as like a resource, um, I'm a big book lover. Mm-hmm. Um, so for anybody that's like experiencing trauma or is learning how to navigate their trauma, I always recommend the body keeps score. Ooh, that's <laughs> such a good book. Good book. Okay. Uh, the, oh, I don't, I can't remember how to say the author's name, but I think it's like, uh, Bessel van Dirk or Dirk something or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But, um, yeah, so that's a great book. And then, uh, another book that I have recently fallen in love with is, um, how to do the work by Dr. Nicole Lepra. That was uh, my most Lepra. recent read. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, so good. Yeah. Um, I love it. Cause it like really challenged me to like, like break through my barriers type of thing. Yeah. So the biggest thing that I struggle with is like, I'm very self-aware. Like I know why I react the way I do in certain situations. Like I know where my insecurities stem from, but then my my way of handling it is intellectualizing it instead of processing it. So yeah. those two books were really highly recommended on TikTok actually. Like people were talking about how much it changed their lives. Yeah. So um, I also have them linked. I have like a, like on my Amazon page for books because people ask me a lot about links to books that I post on my Insta stories. They're both linked there if you miss the spelling or at any point um thank you again we're so happy to have had you here and we hope you have a beautiful rest of your day night whatever you're up to we're sending you the best energy